falling to my knees and I am lost for words so lost in love I'm sweetly broken holy surrender and father it's before the cross that we have been made well that we have found peace with you lord we've we've been saved and we've been delivered from our sins and the effects of our sins and because of that lord We've been brought into this family, and so, Lord, I just pray once more as we open your word, as we see the things contained there, again, so long ago, but nonetheless pertinent for our day, that we would understand concepts in our Christian life that give you glory, and that, Lord, bring other people into your kingdom. And so, Father, once more, we just pray, God, that you would teach us and train us for all that you would have for us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you go ahead and turn and greet your neighbor. Greetings. Don Ho over here. <laughs> Hello back there. What's what's wrong with right here? Everybody's just making me feel and giving me a complex. <laughs> All right, I'm sorry I said anything. <laughs> Yeah, well, you do a good job, Jim. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 2 Kings. 2 Kings will be picking up at chapter 20, verse 1. 2 Kings chapter 20, as we continue to look at the life, and tonight we'll see the death of King Hezekiah. Really what we need to understand as well, make it applicable to our lives, that sometimes those whom God has made good in His sight, do bad things. We all still continue to fall short of the glory of God from time to time. Again, as we live this life, the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit wars against the flesh. We want to do the things that God has commanded us to do, but sometimes we find ourselves in disobedience. And so we see that contrast between that which is of the world and that which is bound for heaven. There's no doubt about that. And it's what we see in King Hezekiah as well, one of the better kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. Now again, Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. This is something that we are constantly reminded of in the Bible and that there are no perfect people. We've seen someone, some of them whom God has given good testimony of. We saw in King David that he was a man after God's own heart. But as we studied the life of King David, we saw that many times he was contrary to God. Many people lost their lives because of it. And King David, although you read through the Psalms and you just see how this man's heart beat for the things of the Lord, and you can look at Samuel, First and Second Samuel, and sometimes you can wonder if this man's even saved. We are told of it concerning the Apostle Paul when he admitted, even himself, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. Now, he was given his past testimony, but notice here he did not say in who I was the chief of all sinners. He says, I am the chief. I am, because why? Because Paul knew the areas where he fell short. He understood the imperfect person that he is. And when you're honest with yourself, you come to that realization. And I would imagine since you know all of your sins and you know very few of anybody else's sins, you should have the, yeah, you should have the knowledge of the magnitude of the sinner that we all are. 
Tonight we're reminded of it in King Hezekiah, a man who we are told that the Lord was with. He was one who did what was right in the Lord's sight. <clears throat> and so many other kings, well, about eight other kings, had that testimony, but they, did, they just fell short in so many areas. But King Hezekiah, he did what was right in God's sight, but he also tore down the high places. It was his desire that man would worship God according to how God has commanded man to worship him. But we're to, what we are to see here is, is in the spiritual, physical weakness of man, we're going to see there still exists the strength of the Lord. And so I need to understand that I want to be well-pleasing to God. I want to live a holy life. But God's still in the midst of our lives. He's still doing the work during our times of obedience, but also our times of disobedience. And so I don't have to worry about the necessity to become born again and again and again and again because I'm not constantly losing my salvation. There's no security in that. God wants us to be secure in our salvation. He wants us to understand and know that when we fail, when we stumble, we fall, that we're able to repent and get right with him. Again, not because I've lost my salvation, but right standing in his sight. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, Paul said, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distress for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's then that I am seeking after the Lord. Now, when we are weak, when we come to the knowledge of our sinful nature, when it wells up once more, we need to bring it to the cross of Christ, just even as we just sang. Because it's during that weakness that we understand where our strength is. And we can so easily forget or mis misunderstand that the strength comes from within us and what we're able to do, but it's always been about the Lord and what he has done and will continue to do. So tonight we'll be breaking this chapter, chapter 20, down into five parts. But there's going to be two main points concerning King Hezekiah. First, we're going to see his physical illness. And then secondly, the intellectual fullness, foolishness of Hezekiah. This man who is right in the sight of God gets sick. People get sick. It's false theology to think anything else. And then as far as intellectual foolishness, there are those times when we do things that are contrary to God, when we do those things which, well, we do those things which are just plain sinful. And so both of these things, they occurred at a critical time when godly leadership was essential. We'll see the main culprit in Hezekiah's life, as it can be in so many of our lives. It was pride that welled up. Pride that welled up, and when pride is, in, well, when pride is present, God will bring us down for the purpose of rebuilding us up. So the first thing, first point, first thing I want to see is in chapter 20, verse 1, Hezekiah's day, and it just simply starts in those days. And what days are those days? Those days are the days when it seems like everything started to fall apart for Hezekiah. Things can be going so well in our Christian lives and You'll have a, a trial, have a hardship or whatever. And then all of a sudden, it just seems like they come in bunches. Well, it had to seem that way for a period of time for Hezekiah. Now, what we do know about him that is applicable for chapter 20 in the preceding chapters is that Hezekiah did die in 686 B.C. We'll learn tonight that from this point, the point of chapter 20, he was given 15 more years to live. 
And so if you subtract 15 years from the time of his death, 686 B.C., the time in chapter 20, verse 1, should be around 701 B.C. Now, we know what happened, and history bears it out. What happened around 701 B.C.? Well, the events of the previous chapter, the Assyrian invasion of the kingdom, southern kingdom of Judah. So what we're told about here in chapter 20, Hezekiah's sickness and the difficulty he was going through, his failure, his pride, all of this was happening just previous to the invasion of Assyria. Secondly, we'll see in the last part of this chapter that Hezekiah is still in the possession of his treasure. He had to have treasures, and we'll see he'll do this later on to show, to display to Babylon. He and his pride was trying to impress them. But we saw chapter 18, verses 15 through 16 previously, that when Assyria was coming into the country, what did he do? He stripped his palace and he stripped the temple of all of its treasure. So chapter 20, again, is previous to that time of chapter 18 and the Assyrian invasion. So we must understand the magnitude of Hezekiah's trial. He lost his health. And again, just think as all these things are happening. He lost his health. He's lost the kingdom's fortune. He's about to lose his job because if Assyria comes in, they displace the king. And he was on the cusp of even losing his life. But the worst thing that happened to him is the condition that caused all of it. And we see it in a parallel account of what's going on in Second Chronicles 32, verse 25, when it says, But Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown him, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore, wrath was looming over him, over Judah and Jerusalem. So this is the day of Hezekiah's pride. Secondly, we see Hezekiah's health, verses 1 through 4. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, now keep in mind, this is Isaiah the prophet, obviously, of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, although he was a prophet, but he had a job, and he had a job in the palace, and he was the court historian. He was the one who would record the events as they would be going on. Well, that would be a prime position for him because the king would take him into his confidence. This would be a historical account of the king's reign, and he would want to keep this for the future generations, especially a prideful man. But Isaiah was able to enter into the fabric of what's going on, the decisions that were being made and how the kingdom was being run. And so God's got his man in place. So it says in those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. That should get your attention. This man is recognized as a prophet. I mean, Hezekiah does so. And you get that message from this man, and you take it as from the Lord. If God says you're going to die, you're going to die. Verse 2, then he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, what Hezekiah is doing here is, this would be similar to what we would say, find your prayer closet. Find that place where you can find that personal space with the Lord. Now, he can't go find a prayer closet because he's sick. He's on his deathbed, so he does the next best thing. And the idea, this is a time between Hezekiah and the Lord. All he's able to do is to turn and to face this wall. Verse 3 Remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth 
with a loyal heart and have done what was good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And it happened before Isaiah had gone into the middle court that the word of the Lord came to him saying, and we'll stop there for this particular point. So Assyria was on the horizon and King Hezekiah was well aware of what they were doing and how they were coming, attacking nations and taking them off into their own land. They had done it to the northern kingdom of Israel. And then he gets, just when you get bad news, you get news that's even worse. Again, the news of his death. Now, Hezekiah's response is not based upon self-righteousness or works of righteousness, which he had done, but his response, it's more of an appeal to the Lord on the basis of the grace of God, but also the obedience of his heart. I wouldn't have a problem praying and pointing out to God, God, I've served you with with all of my heart. I mean, if you truly have, to to the degree that we're able to. God, I've given all to you. And really what that does is it gives perspective. It gives perspective on areas that we will fall short, but also the victories in our lives. What it reminds me of as a Christian is, is that the changed life that I have received from God. Now, does God need to be reminded of this from time to time? Obviously not. But you do. We do. We do need to be reminded of these things from time to time because apparently Hezekiah, as we saw in Chronicles, has gotten away from that. And what God is doing is is bringing him back to that point. And so God will do whatever is necessary to bring us back to the point of submission to him. And so we know of Hezekiah's ministry because of what the Holy Spirit told us earlier. I mentioned it, but in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 3, and he, Hezekiah, did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all his father David had done. And so what did David had done? Well, it's not specific works, but it's having that heart that beats after the Lord. Again, that was the testimony in Acts chapter 13, verse 22, that God spoke of David, that he did what was right in his sight, that his heart was completely sold out to him. So Hezekiah had such a similar heart. And so really, I would imagine Hezekiah's mindset is, because probably mine would be as well, how come with all of the evil kings that had so many days, how come I'm going to have so few, relatively? He, He was about 15 years on the throne at this point. Because in the Jewish way of thinking, a long life was a blessing and it was a reward from the Lord for those who, again, were diligent in seeking after the Lord. In Proverbs chapter 10, verse 27, and keep in mind, your Proverbs is Hezekiah's Proverbs. He had them during that time. It says, the fear of the Lord, those who respect God and his word, it prolongs days, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. And so he's got, I mean, and he doesn't have far to look if you remember his father, Ahaz. His father Ahaz, and I'll allude to it in a little bit, he even sacrificed Hezekiah's brother, a human sacrifice. He made a sacrifice of Hezekiah's brother amongst others, and he caused these false gods to enter into the land. Remember, he went and saw Assyria's altar, and he made a design of it, and the priest made one, and they kind of set aside the Lord's altar for the altar of these false gods. And so if he wanted to look at evil, he didn't have much further to look than his own father, and his father had many years, and so he's got to be wondering, why is this such as it is? Hezekiah, at this time on his sickbed, he's about 39 years old. When he says that he walked before the Lord in truth, what he's saying, I have lived my life to the best of my ability 
according to God's word. Remember, the king was to write out the first five books of the Bible, and so he had that which was necessary for walking properly in the sight of God. He did not do it perfectly, but he did do it properly so that God had taken notice, as we've previously seen, and so he can sit there on his deathbed and can he can plead this case before the Lord. So Hezekiah, he prayed in a situation that he did not understand simply according to what he did understand. And what he did understand was the mercy of God. And that's where he's making his plea. What caused this king's tears at this point? He's thinking, we're coming upon a very difficult time. Here's Assyria. They're on the horizon. They've already taken the northern country of, of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. When the king dies, there's always upheaval. We're going to be made even more vulnerable. And then, on top of all of that, well, God's given him a desire for life, so he's wanting that just by itself. But also, there's no heir at this point. He has no heir, nobody to pass the kingdom to. And so, that will cause strife. I'm sure it will cause contentions and people trying to get position for themselves. And so, Hezekiah has no son. Now, it was common for the king to pass the kingdom on to a brother, but his father sacrificed his brother, and so they really had, or he really had, nobody to pass the kingdom to. And this was going to be a time, even on top of all of that, that you needed an experienced king to be seated upon the throne in order to to govern it through this most difficult day. Now, apparently, Isaiah just delivered the message and pretty much left. And so he's walking through the middle courtyard, It says, but before he got far, God sent him back with another message. So what we're seeing here is, is Hezekiah understanding who it is who is able to rectify his situation. And what is he doing? In the midst of his hardship, and matter of fact, this is as soon as he finds out, he turns to the Lord in prayer. That's the only thing he has to work with, but at least he does that. And so right away, God sends his answer before Isaiah is able to get too far God sends him back with this other message. And so our third point, we see Hezekiah's recovery, verses 5 through 7. Return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, the idea is repentance before God, he's contrite before God, surely I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, you shall go to the temple of God. And I will add to your days 15 years. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake. Now again, God's given grace. He's not going to defend this city because Hezekiah was so good, or the people were so good, because really, again, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but God's got rich plans for that city. And I will add to your days 15 years. I will deliver you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. What he means there, for the promises that I have given King David that he would have a descendant seated upon the throne. Verse 7. Then Isaiah said, take a lump of figs. So they took and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. I don't know what kind of boil this was that was going to cause his death. Was it cancerous? Just really don't know. It doesn't say. But it was apparently that which was going, God was using to take his life. So what we see played out in Hezekiah's sickness, and this is an important point for all of us, because everybody here, you're going to get sick. Everybody here, some point in your life, you're going to get sick. 
And at some point of our lives, if we avoid murder, being murdered, or if we avoid accident, we're going to get sick and die. And so we have something here that is common to all of humanity. And so what we see played out in Hezekiah's sickness is what we are able to see or should be able to see played out in our own times that are similar to it. We see it in James chapter 5, verses 13 through 14. It says, is anyone among you suffering? Now, when it says suffering, the idea behind that is, is any of you in trouble that you're unable to do anything about? Isaiah could say, yeah, I am. I've got Assyria on the horizon. There's big trouble in that. And so that's a reality. Is anyone among you suffering? It says, let them pray. So for the troubles that we deal with and the things that can seem so overwhelming, pray. Pray. We, we like to complain at times. Sometimes we like to tell people about it just to hear ourselves. But the first person that you need to tell about those things is God. Then it says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. We are to rejoice during the good times. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And so it says, let him call for the elders of the church. This is to be a point of faith, a point of faith in God and who God is and what God is able to do. Now, if you call me and ask me to come visit you in the hospital, I will definitely do that, and I'll bring oil, and as I'm there, I'll ask if I can anoint you with oil, and I'll just dab a little bit of this scented, it's got myrrh and frankincense in it, so it smells real spiritual and all that. Uh, It's olive oil, and some of it, I don't know if mine is, some of it is right from Israel, None of that matters as long as we, it's oil. We're just doing, I mean, I've used Crisco oil before. I don't remember I had somebody at my house and they wanted to pray. And so why, why not? It, it was just to anoint that person with oil. Just simply because in James it says to anoint them with oil. It doesn't say what kind and how to mix it or anything like that. But I do have anointing oil, oil that I use for anointing. And if you call me, you're in the hospital at home and you ask me to come over, I'll bring the oil with me. And I will ask you if I can anoint you, and I'll anoint you, I'll dab a little bit on your head, and I'll pray for you. But in actuality, what you're being told here is, is let him, let the person who is sick, call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, over him, over the person who is sick, anointing him, anointing the person who is sick with oil in the name of the Lord. And so the idea here is, this is an act of faith and obedience on the person who is sick. And it says, call for the elders, and notice it is plural. Now, we can't always send a group of people over there, but the idea is, is because you're seeking the Lord out. So here at church, if you ask me to pray for you, I'll find one of the guys, and we'll come and we'll pray for you. Why? Because I ought not to get the glory. Wow, you know what? I had Pastor Mike pray for me, and I got better. He must be a healer. I'm not a healer. Matter of fact, there's not a person... Doctors aside, you understand what I'm saying? I'm talking about a supernatural healing. There's not a person on this earth who's a healer. God is the healer. God may work his healing through our prayers, through the person that anoints you, through the person that prays for you, but God is the one who brings the healing. He's truly the one who is the great physician. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. So that's why he's saying, Call for the elders of the church and be anointed. For he who comes to God, or you could say to equate it to what we've just seen, he who comes to God in prayer, because prayer is the context here, 
must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so if I come to God, if I pray to the Lord, he's going to reward me for diligently seeking him. Am I saying he's going to heal you? No, I can't define the reward. That's between you and the Lord, but he'll make it very clear. He'll make it very plain. And so this, as Hezekiah did, is what we are to do. We are to seek the Lord during those times when we're sick, during those times when we're suffering in trouble. And again, when you're sick, ask that you be anointed with oil. Now, when I anoint somebody with oil, I tell them, this doesn't heal you. There's not been one person who's been healed with the oil either, but this is just simply an act of obedience of our submitting ourselves before a holy God. Now, oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. When somebody's anointed with oil, the idea is being saturated with the Holy Spirit. The priest was to be anointed with oil. The king was to be anointed with oil. And the same thing, there you have the same picture as far as being anointed with oil and that it's the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit that is going to bring a healing if it truly be God's will. So what did God in his grace grant to the king? Well, he ended up doubling his length of his reign. It went from 15 years to about 30 years. And he did heal him, and he also promised on top of all of that to deliver him from Assyria. Verse 6, And I will add to your days 15 years, and I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. So this is the idea here is what we're told in Romans chapter 8, that we're more than conquerors. Why? Because he knew before Assyria even came that God was going to deliver him from Assyria. Unfortunately, he didn't always act according to that knowledge, but God gave him that knowledge so that he would have peace in the midst of the upheavals of his life. Verse 7, then Isaiah said, take a lump of figs. So they took and laid it on the boil and they recovered. I assume that means get a bunch of figs and mash them up and make some kind of ointment or salve to put over the wound. Now, why was the necessity of the figs? What was necessary <clears throat> Excuse me, in the figs? Well, the answer, you see, times in the Lord's ministry. There were times when the Lord healed and he mixed some saliva with some dirt and put it on the eyes. And again, this is just a point of faith. It's a point of healing. There was the blind man in John chapter 9, verse 7, and he said to him, go wash in the pool of Salaam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. And so Jesus met this, this blind man, the blind man of John chapter 9. He met him in the area of the temple. Now, when we were in Israel, when we were in Jerusalem, we went to the pool of Salaam. And it's about, I don't know if it's a quarter mile, but it's a fairly decent distance. And so here's a blind man, and he's telling him to go wash in the pool of Salaam. So it wasn't just walking to the back of his room. It was walking a pretty good distance. And so really what you need to see is what God was wanting of this man. It was an act of faith. If you do what I say, I'll heal you. Guess what happens if the man doesn't go and he doesn't wash in the pool of Salaam? Even though Jesus touched him, the man's not going to be healed. You have to be obedient to what God has called us to do. What happens with Hezekiah if they don't put the fig, <clears throat> excuse me, fig lumps on his wound? Then he's not healed. Again, we have to move forward in what God has called us to do. So these are points of faith. Faith in what God has called us to do. 
and that we would see the result of what God has said he was going to do. Points of faith that as we do what we are told, the Lord will do what he says. So the blind man, if he does not wash, and Hezekiah, if he does not apply, they don't get healed. It's not that the figs were essential or the pool of Salaam was essential. It was the faith that was essential. It was the faith that I did what God told me to do, and God did what he said he was going to do. Do what God says, and he will do what he said. What's the meaning of this, what I see in this? Part of what I see in this, yeah, is definitely to do what God says. But also, I just look at these things, and I think, Jesus could have just healed the man, but he mixed some dirt and some saliva. He applied it to his eyes, told this guy to go wash in the pool of Salaam, told Hezekiah uh, to put, or at least Isaiah, to put the fig salve on, uh, on King Hezekiah. I need to take my medication. And, and again, you, you've heard this in church circles. You, what, you, you have a lack of, you're not going to trust in God? No. Guess where the medication has come from? It's come from the Lord and the mind that's able to develop these things. And God has given us these things. And so if you're sick, take your medication. It doesn't mean that you don't have faith. Matter of fact, we need to take our medications for the things that ail us in faith. And as we do these things, it's then that we see God move. It's not that God can't supernaturally or instantaneously heal you, but we just take it one step at a time. God has provided good doctors. He's provided this age. I mean... I get my checkups, my father, not to get too graphic, my father died of colon cancer, and so I get that checkup every five, every ten years. It's supposed to be five years. I'm a little disobedient in that, but God has still been faithful. Um, but we just do what we're supposed to do. We do what we have to do, and as we do these things, it's God who gets the glory. Verses 8 through 11. <clears throat> and Hezekiah said to Isaiah... What is the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord the third day? Then Isaiah said, This is a sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do the things which he had spoken. Shall the shadow go forward 10 degrees or backward 10 degrees? So he's talking about on a sundial. So will it back up in time or will the sun move forward in time? And Hezekiah answered, It is an easy thing for the shadow to go down 10 degrees, but let... No, but let the shadow go backward 10 degrees. So Isaiah the prophet cried out to the Lord, and he brought the shadow 10 degrees backward by which it had gone down on the sundial of Ahaz. This is something that Ahaz had installed in the, um, in the uh, not the temple, but the throne room area of the king, the, the, uh, uh, the living quarters of the king. There's a common thing in the Old Testament to ask for a sign. The signs of the past were given to us for our faith today and for our understanding today. But as far as signs today, signs today, and even with Hezekiah, just see the weakness of man, and they can be a sign of a lack of faith. Jesus said to the unbelieving religious community, it's an evil generation that seeks after a sign. And so, really, we look at this this concept of signs and we look at this concept of trust and how did the two really blend together i mean hezekiah you want a sign that you're going to be healed in three days you'll see the sign you'll be healed but he did ask for a sign and god graciously gave him a sign and if you came to me and said god gave you a sign whatever in order to um 
Well, really, God will only give you a sign in order to validate his word. God does not give signs apart from his word. Now, in 2 Peter, Peter saw some amazing things during his time with the Lord. But in 2 Peter, it won't be on the board, but in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 19, it says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. When he said he was an eyewitness of his majesty, he's more than likely referring to the Mount of Transfiguration. When he went on that mountain and he saw Jesus transform that spiritual body right before his eyes, and he saw the glory of the Lord. And so you talk about signs. That's a pretty amazing sign. Verse 17, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So it wasn't just that Jesus was transformed before his eyes. I also heard the voice of the Father. This is my beloved Son. And so this is an amazing thing that he got to experience. Verse 18, And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Verse 19, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. Now, in the original language, and mine is also written as a footnote here, a better translation, we also have the more sure prophetic word. The more sure prophetic word, which is the word of God, is what he's referring to, more sure than any sign or any voice you'll ever hear. And so, just as Peter, I got these signs, but it pales in comparison to the more sure prophetic word of God. Because how many times have you heard somebody who believes they've gotten a sign, or maybe you have, but you're not really sure what that sign means? I mean, I've heard that. I've had a dream, and I feel God's calling, but I don't really know what it means. Or, you know, the sign, this particular sign, the direction, or something he wants me to do, but I'm not really sure. Well, we have the more sure prophetic word of God. And any sign will back up the Word of God. It'll point us concerning the Word of God. It will lead us and direct us according to God's Word. So we have the more sure prophetic Word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Notice how Peter's using a play on words here. The prophetic word is as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Just earlier he was talking about Jesus Christ being glorified, speaking of his majesty, but we have the word of God that is a light to us in this day. Verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Keep in mind when you hear that, that every author of the Bible is a prophet. A prophet is one who God speaks to and speaks through. A prophet was a man or a woman who delivered the word of God. We have it now here that we're able to have it upon our laps, that we're able to have it within our homes. And so we've got such rich promises of the word of God for times such as Hezekiah is going through because as I said before, we're all going to go through the difficult days, but just some of his promises, and his promises need to be enough, but we're told in Matthew 28:20 20, that we are to make disciples, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the end of the church age. Jesus is saying, as you go forth for the purpose of making disciples, 
I'm there. I'm in it. I'm with you. And the reason we need to know that, because we understand, we've seen in the scriptures, but also experienced, there's going to be hard times, there's going to be trouble, there's going to be persecution. Jesus is just a prayer away. Hebrews 13.5, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Again, God is always with us wherever we go. Philippians 1.6, Being confident of this very thing, of all these things that God has told us, this one, he's making a point, you can be confident of this, of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That good work that he started is the day of your salvation, and he will bring it to completion until, well, he's going to be the idea here between, or behind Philippians 1.6 is as God has started that good work in the church age, he's going to work it all the way through the church age. As far as the sundial, the question has been asked, did the earth reverse its rotation? Did the sun change its location in order to make that go back? Or did God just simply bend the light? And the absolute answer to that is, I don't have a clue. Everybody else I read, nobody else had a clue. Because sometimes the Bible just simply doesn't tell us, and that needs to be good enough. The fact of the matter is, is that God did it. He worked that miracle for the purpose of strengthening the man's faith. And then, unfortunately, after all of that, we come to verses 12 and 13, and we see Hezekiah's pride. At that time, Barodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah was attentive to them and showed them, of the dignitaries that brought the letter, he was attentive to them and showed them all the house of his treasure, the silver and gold, the spices and the precious ointment, and all his armory and all that was found amongst his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all of his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Now remember, these are the things that he's going to strip and give to Assyria, but as for this time, they're there. Now, the king of Babylon, Babylon was not the threat at this time. Matter of fact, they were dealing with Assyria. Babylon was a continual enemy that Assyria was unable to put away. And later on, Babylon would even conquer Assyria. But at this point, if you recall from last week, Assyria, well, they had to go back to their country and they were dealing with some situations there. The king... Uh, was dealing with some things and some disobedient nations and whatnot. And so it seems like the surrounding nations are taking time. What are we going to do? They're they're looking to bring countries together, some confederations for the purpose of protection. We saw that on Thursday night during Jeremiah's day as well. But we see that um, these dignitaries have come to uh, Jerusalem, more than likely for the purpose of delivering that letter. But also, hey... If Assyria does come after us, Hezekiah, are you willing to join us? Are you willing to join your strength with our strength? Now, that was probably something that was attractive to him. He's worried and concerned about his kingdom, but the problem with that is he forgot the promise that was given to him in verse 6. That God said, I'm going to heal you, plus I'm going to deliver you from Assyria. Now, we know that God did, but he should have been trusting in that rather than relying upon alliances with the world. Matter of fact, we'll close with this in a little bit, but this is going to be detrimental to his descendants. 
Whenever you're disobedient to the Lord, it seems as if it's your descendants or the ones who suffer. And so the purpose of these visitors was to form an alliance. More than likely, Hezekiah is trying to show them that he's a worthy ally of them. And unfortunately, he's, he's exposing his riches. That will be a motivation later on um, to the king of Babylon and the king of Babylon's son at that time, Nebuchadnezzar. So from Hezekiah's perspective, God had already promised protection. He did not need Babylon, and he should have had no fellowship with those unbelievers. A verse I have quoted, I think, just about every Sunday night for the past couple of weeks, James 4.4, 4, adulterers and adulteresses. This does not mean people who are unfaithful in their marriage. Speaking of people who are unfaithful to their God, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so I just read the promises that you have. Now we see Hezekiah. Hezekiah, God said he was going to heal you, and he did. And if God is able to heal you, he's certainly able to deliver you from Assyria. Why are you drawing fellowship with these people? And we can so easily go to the world as well. But again, we have those rich promises of God. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And as I have begun a good work in you, I will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so we have the same promises that we would not form unholy alliances in the things that, well, the things we deal with in our lives, but we would seek first the kingdom of heaven, that we would be people who are quick to pray and seek the desires and the will of God and the things that we deal with. Although Hezekiah was physically healed, the condition that would well up from time to time was his pride. If you could talk to him, you would be well to quote him, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. King Hezekiah doesn't say that, that's my edition, but it says, For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you have not received it? Those treasures were from the Lord. This kingdom is from the Lord. All that we have is from the Lord. And there's no pride there, there should be no pride there, and there, there's not, it's not according to our abilities, but it's according to God's grace that he's given all that he's given to us, all the blessings, all the good things that have come down from heaven. And you can say, well, I worked pretty hard for those things. Yeah, but it was God who provided the job. It's a provision from the Lord that we would give glory to God on those things that I would understand that nothing makes me different than anybody else. You can have the most rank unbeliever standing here and myself. The only difference between the two of us is God. And it's who Christ has created us to be and is creating us to be. And by the grace of God, there we go, just as the heathen does. Charles Spurgeon said, Be not proud of race, face, place, or grace. Be not proud of your race, your skin color. There's nothing you did to make your skin the color that it is. Be not proud of your face, as far as looks are concerned. Be not proud of place, the position that God has given you in life. Be not proud of God's grace because it was a free gift that was given to you. You did not earn it. Now, if you indeed received it, do not boast as if you have not received it. And then lastly, we close with Hezekiah's rebuke, starting at verse 14. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say and from where did they come to you? So Hezekiah said, they came from a far country, from Babylon. 
And he said, what have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing amongst my treasures that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Now, if I was Hezekiah, I don't think I'd be too happy when Isaiah showed up. He rarely had very good news for him, and he'll not have good news here. Verse 17, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated, these riches and treasures, until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then you see Hezekiah's response, and this isn't a really good response. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken, it is good. He's understanding that this is from God, and and blessed be the will of God. For he said, Will there not be peace and truth, at least in my days? How do you look at your descendants and and understand that they're going to be carried away captive, that they're going to be servants in a foreign king's land, that the riches are going to be stripped, and your nation is going to be sacked and think, well, at least it's going to be good in my day. I think this is an absolute failure. I think pride is still active within his life here. The Bible doesn't really say anything on that, but although it does go on in verses 20 and 21 to speak of the end of his days. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah, all his might and how he made a pool and tunnel and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Hezekiah rested with his fathers, then Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. Hezekiah made that pool, Hezekiah's pool and water tunnel, because when Assyria was coming during a siege, so the the, the um, palace would have, or actually Jerusalem would have water. When we're in Israel, if you come to Israel, you'll have a chance to go through Hezekiah's water tunnel. I imagine the time of the year that we're going to be there this year, it's going to be pretty cold. It's pretty narrow, but it's very interesting as they hewn this thing through solid rock for the purpose of bringing the water into the, um, into the city. And here it is. It's written in the Bible, and you can go down there, and you can see it. You can even stand in it. And so it's really cool when you see the scriptures being brought to life. And so this man Hezekiah, an imperfect man. He was a good man. He had a heart that sought after the Lord. But nonetheless, we see many areas of his imperfections. We ought not to, we ought not to look down at our noses to him, though, because we should be able to look at all of our lives and see the imperfections. But in the midst of everything, what we truly need to see is the grace of God. The grace of God that continues to strive with mankind, the grace of God that continues to minister to mankind, and the grace of God that maintains mankind. Father, once again, we do thank you, Lord, that you have brought us to this place, that God, you brought us to this place of grace, that we understand your goodness and your mercy. And Father, I pray in this coming week, Lord, that we would just rejoice in every moment that you have given us, that we would see every opportunity that you have brought us to, and that, Lord, we would take advantage of these things. And so, Lord, I lift up those who have come out tonight. I pray that you would go before them. I pray, Father, that they would travel safely. And, Lord, that we would glorify you through this week to come. Lord, I lift up our brother Jonathan. Jonathan is in uh, Nepal right now. He, He traveled for 30 hours. And I just pray, Father, that you would bless him, keep him safe, and show him things, Father, that you desire to show him. But right now, again, we just thank you for this night, that you would bless this last song of worship to our souls, and that, Father, you would 
and bless our time of fellowship to our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Will you all stand, please? Again, keep Jonathan up in prayer. He did travel to Nepal, and he is there right now, and uh, he's just in the tribal areas going through there and seeing what the Lord's doing back there. Also, if you want to sign up for the Valentine's Day banquet, tonight is the absolute last minute to do so. If you want to serve at it, you can sign up all the way up until the event. We'll let you in for that. God bless you guys. Have a great week. Great is your faithfulness, O God. You wrestle with the sinner's restless heart. You lead us by still waters and to mercy And nothing can keep us apart So remember your people Remember your children Remember your promise, O God your grace is enough your grace is enough your grace is enough for me great is your love and justice god you use the weak to lead the strong You lead us in the song of your salvation. And all your people sing along. So remember your people. Remember your children. Remember your promise, O oh God. Your grace is enough, your grace is enough, your grace is enough for me. Your grace is enough, your grace is enough, your grace is enough for me. So remember your people, remember your children, remember your promise, O oh God. Your grace is enough, heaven's grace is enough, your grace is enough for me. Your grace is enough, heaven's reaching down to us. Your grace is enough for me. God, I see your grace is enough. I'm covered in your love. Your grace is enough for me. 
por mim. 